We want to continue on now through our study of uh, 2 Timothy that we began last week in part one. We looked at chapter one. Today we're going to look at part two, chapter two, finishing the race. And would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? Chapter two of 2 Timothy, beginning in verse one. Paul continues, he says, You then, my son, speaking to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. And if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they know they, know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses 
and escape from the trap of the devil who is taking them captive to do his will. Let's pray. Father, it's our prayer, as always, that you would open your word to us so that we might not only understand with our intellect what the scripture is saying, as important as that is, but that we would also understand deep within our hearts, we would have a knowledge within our soul, Lord, of what your spirit is saying to us in particular. The biggest danger that James warned against is that we would be those who hear your word but fail to put them into practice. And so, God, we pray that you would give us both graces, the grace to hear it and the grace to do it, because we know in our own selves we'll fail. We need your help, Lord. We surrender ourselves to you now, right now. In this moment, we open our hearts to you and we say, Lord, have your way in us. Help us to hear and to do the things that your Spirit speaks to us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you go to the Roman Forum today, you'll find a large medieval church standing over the site that once was the Mamertine prison where Paul was held. Prison is maybe speaking of it in a context that's greater than it really was. Essentially, it was an ancient cistern, a hole in the ground that had been dug and created to hold water. But somewhere around a thousand years before Paul ended up there, they had turned into a holding cell. The idea of imprisonment didn't really exist in the ancient world. You were just put in custody until they were ready to execute you. It was reached through a hole in the ground. You would be lowered by a rope and dropped there so that anybody who came to visit you had to go in the same way. Really, it wasn't a place that was designed for any kind of easy escape you pretty much were put into a hold. And it, it's in this dark, dank, cold stone prison that we find that Paul's thoughts are not upon the rigors of his imprisonment or even his impending execution. His primary concern was that the many churches he had planted and that the leaders he had placed over them would stand fast that they would remain faithful and wouldn't allow themselves to be overcome by fear and terror because he knew that when fear comes in, there is a response of what we would simply call cowardice. And that cowardice led many to flight as we talked about last week. There's kind of a, a, a descending order of things that begins to take place. Paul had been warned by the Holy Spirit, we're told back in chapter 20 of Acts, that he says, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. So he said, be on your guard, because there are kind of come these false teachers, men who once had stood with you, but now no longer do, whose desire is to lead you to themselves, not so much to lead you away from the truth, but rather to make themselves the focus point of your attention and your devotion. So that what follows is Paul's words are instructions to him yet again in verse 14 we read last week where he said, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Again, he said, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. So that 
there are two things really that we need to be aware, or I should say two battlefronts where we need to be on our guard as God's servants. The first one is an obvious external danger. When Paul said in Acts 20 that the Holy Spirit warns me that prison hardships are facing me. He knew that there was going to be suffering. Later on, he says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So he wanted them to understand that this was not abnormal, but this was normal Christianity. Now, we live in a day and age where we don't like to think that that's normal, but biblically, it is what we find to be the case, that if we decide to truly follow Jesus, to be those who really commit ourselves to be obedient to his leadership in our life, there will be times and places where we'll find ourselves in situations, honestly, we just simply don't want to be in. And that can be of varying degrees of difficulty, but nonetheless, there's a path that we begin to go down that is not our chosen path. My chosen path is a pretty comfortable, easy, go-with-the-flow kind of way of life. But the path sometimes that God has on me can be like that. It can be wonderful, it can be beautiful, and at the same time it also can be dangerous and challenging and frightening. And the danger that Paul saw in those kind of external pressures is that faith often can retreat into fear. It's why he said we haven't been given the spirit of cowardice, quite literally. Because cowardice that he talks about in chapter 1 can many times begin to turn into compromise in chapter 2. A, a spiritual captivity, in fact, he describes it as such, that you compromise, and essentially a compromise is to keep yourself safe, but he said that safety becomes a prison that takes you captive, and before you know it, your life is fulfilling the enemy's purposes and will. You're taken captive by him, and you begin to fulfill his agenda for your life. And ultimately, in chapter 3, he'll go on to tell us that that leads you into a spiritual corruption. This is a, a downward flow that is an erosive effect of what happens when we determine that because of our fears, we're not going to follow him as closely as we once did. But still, Paul goes on to say that the greater danger, greater than the external threats of governments and persecutions and so forth, was the internal danger that they faced, especially from some of their spiritual leaders who had basically forsaken the faith, who had really reprobated themselves. He cites, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 17, two of them. He talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus. He had mentioned them in Paul's first letter to Timothy as well. He says, who have wandered away from the truth. And they say that the resurrection, which is essentially the foundational hope of a believer, that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Now, it's an interesting way he phrases that. They didn't just simply drop off the edge of the earth. Rather, they wandered away from the faith. It's kind of like the police report I was watching on the news last night of a police officer who was on patrol, and he sees a three-year-old boy in pajamas walking down the street. 
And of course, he had his canine dog with him, so he was able to literally track the dog, little kid back to his home because he had no idea where he was or where he lived. And when he got there, what he discovered is mom and dad and the other siblings are in bed asleep, and this little three-year-old, you know, probably a future cat burglar, had managed to get up, walk around, open the front door, and made his way down the road. He had just wandered away. And that's the kind of thing that Paul's saying, that somehow they just kind of wander away. In fact, it's interesting to me that Paul repeatedly talks about this quarreling, this kind of argumentation. And keep in mind, in Proverbs it says a quarrel can only consist or only survive based upon pride. So essentially the implication here is that there's this prideful argumentation and quarreling going on where one person tries to distinguish themselves from another to make themselves more spiritual, more important, more insightful, or whatever the drive is. But the result was is that they ended up getting away from the faith and ending up further and further from the simplicity of the gospel and ultimately coming to a conclusion that Paul doesn't give us enough information to say definitively. But they came to a conclusion that the resurrection, the second coming of Jesus and all the rest was not something that we should be living for, but rather as Christians, we should be focusing on the here and the now. Now, what's interesting to me is that's not just an old argument. It's an argument that has come over and repeatedly, when Peter talks about in his first letter or second letter, he says in chapter 3, there are some who are saying, where is the sign of his coming? Because everything continues exactly the same as they have from the very beginning since our fathers fell asleep. And the idea of that teaching, again, was this idea, we should be focusing on our life here and now. We shouldn't be worrying about what's going to happen in some distant future that what's really important is what's going on right now, that the bookends of birth and death are all that really matter, everything else we don't need to concern ourselves with. And the sad thing is, is that we live in a culture of such prosperity and such blessing, despite how we may feel, uh, compared to those in the history of the world, we are the most financially secure, the healthiest, we have more benefits in, in our culture than people have ever known in the history of the world. And yet, despite that, we begin to think that all that really matters, all that really is important, are really just the front and the back end of our lives. We begin to look at life purely from the idea of from birth to death and what we can extract from our lives. That old adage, that baby boomer adage, you know, that those who die with the most toys win. It may be kind of corny, but it hasn't really changed. We just maybe need to rephrase that because the mindset still exists. That we measure ourselves by ter terminal things, terrestrial things, earthly things, we don't measure ourselves and the value of our lives by the eternal. Another one that Paul mentions here, besides Hymenaeus and Philetus, is Alexander the coppersmith later on in chapter 4. It's interesting, in Acts 19, when Paul is first arrested in the city of Ephesus, it is Alexander who is pushed forward because apparently of his eloquence to defend Paul against the crowds that want to rip him limb from limb. So here again was a man who had once been prominent within the church, but now he had become Paul's enemy. 
Because Paul says, he did me great deal of harm. Be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So here again was a man who had been one of the spokesmen of the beginnings of the church in Ephesus, that great ministry. Now his ministry is to go to Rome as a witness against Paul. And we, again, we're left to wonder, what was that all about? How had that taken place? Why would he do such a thing? Well, because of this, Paul has a twofold charge to Timothy. The first thing he says to him is, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in grace. Don't be strong in fear. Don't be overtaken by cowardice, but be strong in the grace of God. Now, what is grace? Grace is God's power working through your incompetence for God's glory. That's what grace is. It's God's power working through my incompetence for his glory. It's not something that I conjure up in a pot like some kind of magician. It's something I simply say, God, I can't, but you can, and I am available. When I say you are willing, and I'm willing, and you are available, give me the power to do what you want me to do. That's what it means to be strong in God's grace. We're not the little choo-choo who said, I think I can. We're not sitting there really kind of grinding down and we're going to make it happen. No, we who walk by grace are people who do great things, not because we're great, but because God is great. And we simply say, God, unless you show up in your greatness and unless you pour out your power, we're going to be able to accomplish very little. So he says, be strong in that grace, not in your own self. Don't measure yourself by your intellect, your capacity, your, your knowledge, your experience, or any of those other things. Measure yourself by grace. God, by your grace, make me strong. But we have to understand that grace is kind of a two-sided thing. It's a, it's a coin with two sides. On the one hand, when we speak of grace, we're talking, as Paul says here, the power of God has saved us. And he adds, not because of anything that we have done. We've been saved by the grace of God. It's not something that I have done of myself. But on the other hand, and not separate, there is what we call serving grace, that God has called us to a holy life. Now, unfortunately, the word holy gets kind of a bad rap because what it really implies is more like the idea of W-H-O-L-L-Y than H-O-L-Y. In other words, holy or totally, that I am called to a life that is to be totally surrendered to him. And this is, again, a concept that I trust you understand, so forgive me for being repetitious. I just want to clarify this for the two who don't know it yet. But the idea is that God wants to save me, as Paul says, for a purpose. That God has saved me and sanctified me that I might live on purpose for him and be used for his glory and his honor. That's why the importance of, of living a, a consistent Christian life, or at least a life that is basically consistent with what we say is really important. In fact, the, the scriptures don't describe any other kind of Christianity. The Bible never talks about any kind of Christianity that is saved but isn't lived. That's something that's a creation of people like Alexander or Hymenius or Philetus, 
Those kind of people create these theologies, and they're very popular. I mean, really, when somebody says you can get rich and you don't have to do anything, you know, it's attractive. I'm listening. I may not be investing, but I'm listening. Maybe this time it's real. Not. But, you know, when I, when I go by this poster and it says, uh, you know, uh, uh, nobody ever got rich, you know, uh, going to a baseball game and they're advertising the idea of gambling. And I thought, well, I never got rich going to a baseball game, but nor did I ever lose all my money. <laughs> there's, there's the other side of the story that's not being told. And that's the whole point that Paul's saying, that there are those, even in this first century, who are beginning to present this bifurcated kind of Christianity, where they're saying, basically, there are those who are saved, and then there are those who are disciples, and those can be two different things. I would admit, practically, there are people who are saved who are not walking as disciples, but that's not the will of God. That's not where the power of God is found. That's not where life change is found. That's not where joy is found. That's not where victory is found. In fact, to illustrate the point, Paul uses an interesting metaphor about what he calls the great house. In this context, the great house implies the church. He says in verse 19, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. In other words, we're talking about something that isn't up for debate or negotiation. Here's a fact of life in the kingdom of God. He says it's sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. Now we hearken back to John 7 where Jesus said some would come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say to them, who are you? Oh, we're, we did miracles in your name. We, we did wonders. We served and sacrificed. He says, I don't know who you are. You may be good people in comparison to the humanity, but I don't know you. And then he adds this. He said, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, wickedness in that context implies a life that is self-directed rather than God-directed. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily a serial killer, although I certainly would put that in the extreme examples of being wicked. But the simple idea of wickedness is simply that you are not a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of yourself, you're living for your own goals, agendas, and passions. He says that, that anybody who confesses him, who truly knows him, is not going to be living a life based upon what you want your life to look like. And I'm not saying that you don't have imaginations, you don't have dreams, you don't have things that you'd like to see, but you recognize when you're praying, Lord, I would love to see you do this, but your will be done your kingdom come, not mine. In the end analysis, God, all I want is what you want. Because as the psalmist said, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. But there's, that's kind of a trick, really, that God plays on us. Because when you delight yourself on the Lord, you know what happens? Your desires change, and what you want is to delight after the Lord. You find yourself saying, Lord, I want what you have for me. And if it's not for me, I don't want it. Unfortunately, there are many who don't understand the Christian life in that context. 
For them, what it means is simply saying, God is that magical machine in the heavens that I punch and pull the levers, and he responds to me and gives me what I want so that I can experience my best life now as I define it for myself. Don't get me wrong. I think God wants you to have a fantastic life. As, as one politician put it, I think God wants your life to be huge. You know, I, I do. But the whole point is, you discover that what he is defining for you often hasn't even occurred to you as of yet. And in fact, the path to getting there can sometimes be challenging, frightening. In some cases, you might even say people can be terrified by what God calls them to. Well, in saying all of this, I'm battling with my microphone here. It keeps on pulling off my ear. In saying all of this, Paul goes on and gives the example or the metaphor. He says, in a large house, in this case he's talking about the church, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but of wood and clay. In other words, in a Jewish home, there were two categories of vessels. Things that were gold and, and silver were things that were sacred and special, just like they would be in your house. But he said there were also clay pots and, and things that were made of wood. These were things that could become unclean through their usage and often had to be discarded and destroyed. And so you used them for only taking out the trash. You didn't use those for serving people at the table. He says some are for noble purposes and some are for ignoble or unglorious purposes. And then he adds, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Maybe an easier way of understanding what he just said here is the way that Eugene Peterson translated it. He said, in a well-furnished kitchen, there are, there are not only crystal goblets and silver platters, but waste cans and compost buckets. Some containers used to serve fine meals and others to take out the garbage. Become the kind of container God can use to present any and every kind of gift to his guests for their blessings. Essentially what Paul was saying is saying, you know, you may be part of God's household, but if you allow your life to become defiled by things that are not of God, God is not going to use you. You're not going to be useful to his purposes. And so the issue is, is he talking about being saved? No. But is he talking about experiencing the fullness of life that Christ has ordained for you? Yes, that's exactly what he's talking about. Which relates to Paul's second concern in this letter and that is of passing the baton of lead leadership to only those men who are useful and prepared. He says to Timothy, and the, many, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. This concept is critical because as someone once noted, the church is only one generation away from extinction. God has no grandkids. 
that all the church needs to expire is for one generation to fail to fulfill the commission that we have been given. And so as Paul is looking at himself from that edge of eternity, that's why I call this series The View from the Edge, and he's wanting to pass the baton, of necessity to pass the baton to the next generation, he says it's critical that we look for men who are entrustable men, men who are reliable who are qualified to teach others. But the question becomes, how can we identify who those men are? Well, Paul doesn't begin by looking at the things that you and I often look for when we're searching for a leader. He makes no reference to education you know, or to training or to intellect, to charisma or personality all the kind of things that seem so important to us today. Why is that? Well, I like what Re Leonard Ravenhill said one time. He said, the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. See, Paul knew that men who are devoted to prosperity and personality and proper popularity would behave in difficult times exactly the way the hireling does, as he spoke of in John 10. There in John 10, Jesus said, the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. In other words, he has no sense of ownership so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. There's something about that willingness to put your life on the line for what you believe God wants that is a characteristic of a shepherd. A false shepherd basically sees difficulties and checks out. So that the search for leaders, he said, should begin with this ability, number one, to endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The word endure here literally means to suffer evil or troubles or hardships without quitting, without quitting. You know, it's an interesting thing. My pastor used to always say that God is not so much concerned with availability, or excuse me, ability, as he is with availability. One of the things that I've found has been a critical quality that is in short supply increasingly in our world is the kind of commitment and stick to that makes people hang in there when things aren't fun. When I think about my wife and I, you know, this summer we celebrated our, our 46th wedding anniversary, and I think, you know, suddenly I realized that 46 years is a long time, and people always want to know, what's the secret of your success? And I would love to say, well, you know, it was my animal magnetism that she never could resist. Um, it's just my, you know, my charming good looks, my bubbling personality, uh, my stable character. It means all those. I would love to be able to give this list of things that, that flatter me in the manner which I yearn to be. And her the same. But the truth of the matter is, we just never gave up. We just never gave up. I mean, it wasn't an option. To deny the marriage vows was tantamount to denying the Savior himself. 
marriage to us is a sacred covenant that is only changed by death doing us part. So that the thing is, my wife made the comment about saying, you know, I, I, you know it'd be okay if, if I were to pass away, you may want to remarry. And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> I, the thought of going through that process again, of learning to live with someone else, no thank you, not unless they come up with a robot version. I'm not doing it. One that I can program to do whatever I want. No. So maybe you're going to say, yeah, it's just habit. <laughs> well, there's a part of that as well. But the whole point is that it's this enduring in fact, this idea of enduring was so significant to Paul that he repeats it again and again. In, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, endure everything for the sake of the elect, that is the church. In verse 12, he says, if we endure, we will reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. In chapter 4, in verse 5, he says, keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, distart, discharge all your duties. Which, by the way, the idea of duty is, 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 is losing currency in our culture. Less and less we find a sense of duty. My parents' generation were duty-bound. They did what they did because it was their duty to do it. They didn't talk in terms of, well, I don't know, if it feels like it, I will. They got hired by a corporation. They were committed to that corporation. It was their duty to be a loyal employee. And then my generation came along and we said, well, we're, we're committed to them as long as the stepping stone to the next career because what we're about, we're not governed by duty. Boomer, boomers are governed by success. So what can we do to continue to raise the mantle of success, go higher and higher and higher? We'll work ourselves to de death, neglect our families, throw away our marriages, and do anything as long as success is on the end line. And where some of us are at that point in our life, we're going, that was a bad deal. And you end up with a younger generation now that simply says, I just do whatever feels good to me at this moment in time. They're impulse driven. And so when, when we talk about him saying, do your duties, one of the things that's desperately needed, one of the batons that desperately needs to be passed on to younger generations is, you need to have a sense of duty, a sense of commitment, that you're part of a community of believers because God has called you to be part of a community of believers. You don't hang around here just because you liked what you heard this Sunday or things are going this way or the idea is one church girl says, guy said to me that people go to the church where their seven best friends go to church regardless of whether or not they get fed spiritually or any other way because it's all about following their tribe. Well, you see, something's missing in that because you know why I came to Spokane? I moved to Spokane because my seven best friends were in this church. <laughs> no, I moved to Spokane to find out that half the church hated me because I wasn't the guy who was here before me. Literally. They were riding Costa Mesa complaining about me. You aren't the first. So, <laughs> so why was I here? I remember trying to talk myself out of coming here. I remember Ralph Castle was a, a friend from ministries, Coast Mason and other ministry we were at. I'm, I go into his office and he says, what's up? And I said, oh, this church in Spokane, they keep on writing me and they keep calling me. They want me to come. And, and I said, it's just not God's will. And he says, how do you know it's not God's will? And I said, well... We just bought a house two months ago, and if I were to put it back in the market, I'd lose my shirt. 
And, go, and, uh, and besides, you know, it uh, doesn't pay nearly as well as this job does, and it's a lot more work. And then when I finished bloviating, he just looked at me the way that Ralph has a way of staring at you, and he says, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and in those words, he destroyed the entire argument. And I sat there and said, if it's God's will, then I should do God's will. Well, God, I still, I still wasn't done with God. We wrestled for a season. But nonetheless, you come to the realizing, why do you do that? Why do you put your house in the market and hope that you don't lose your shirt and move to a place that you don't know anything about and you've never been to, to get involved in the lives of people that you have no connection with, no history, no experience, and to just show up knowing that they're going to like the other guy better than you? What makes you do that? And the answer is, it's God's duty. It's what he's called me to. And I know some of you are sitting there going, amen, I know the story, I've been the journey. There are other yous who are saying, you know, I've never thought of that before. I've always thought about what I felt strongest at this moment, and that's what I leap to. And maybe you're at that point in your life where you're going, I'm not sure some of those choices were the right choices. As I sat with a woman uh, a couple of weeks ago who had made radical lifestyle changes and career choices because she was pursuing her career, and now she's sitting there making more money than she ever imagined was possible. I mean, it's, it was kind of hard for me to get my mind around the kind of money this woman is making. And she says, and I'm lo losing my husband, I'm losing my kids. I live in a three, four million dollar home with an incredible view, and I'm losing everything that matters. And she said, it's all because I left Spokane. I wanted to leave to make more money. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to leave Spokane to make more money. I'm saying it's wrong to leave Spokane and make more money if it's not God's will. Now, I don't have anything about making more money. In fact, if you want to make me make more money, that's, that's cool too. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not poor-mouthing out here. You know? I'm not running around going, hey, it's go glorious to be poor. No, no, that's not the point. It's really not even a, an issue. It's what is God calling you to do? And I know that isn't always easy to figure out. But unless the predominant concern for a man or a woman is, God, I want to be faithful to you. I want to be where you want me to be, to do what you want me to do in exactly the way that you want it to do. That has to be the driving passion because he saved you that you might not go to hell, but he left you on the planet so that you might serve him while you're here. In fact, Paul really goes through and gives really six characteristics of, that I could find of, of what I call an enduring man. What are, what's the qualities of someone who really endures? Well, the first thing he says, tells us is no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Last week, I, I mentioned that A.W. Tozer once said that the problem for many people in America is they believe that the world is a playground when in fact it's a battlefield. Here, Paul steps up and says, you are a soldier, and as a soldier, you have a duty, and your duty is to please your commander, and obviously our commander commander is Jesus Christ, and therefore we don't get involved in other things. We keep focused to the charge that's been placed upon us. 
And that's why the first thing we find is that there's this single-minded focus. There are no divided loyalties. The double-minded man that James speak of is what he's referring to here. That we're not kind of like, well, I want to serve the Lord as long as I can do it within this context. No, I've been there. Believe me, in my mind, I've been there. My, my calling in the Lord was very, very clear to me. It either had to be a premium ski hill or a beautiful beach. It had to be skiing or surf, one of those two things. I knew that was God's call for my life, and I was going there. And then I moved to Spokane. <laughs> and the beach is not close. And if I drive far enough, there's some pretty nice skiing. But that's another story. But there needs to be that focus saying, God, it's what you want. It's what you want. I was explaining to someone one time about my trips to India, especially in the early days, and talking about how you'd be on a plane for 48 hours, and then you'd finally get to this little village, and, and you couldn't drink the water because they didn't even have bottled water in those days, and you had to take a filter with you, and, and uh, it just... It was like it was just it was a brutal experience traveling with these groups going from village to village where some places where people would kids would come up and touch your skin because they'd never seen a white man before. And going through that whole experience, and I come home and I'm explaining this to someone, and they said, Well, why in the world would you go and do something like that? And I couldn't say, because it's so exotic and so fun. Uh, in, not, I do it because I enjoyed the food poisoning I repeatedly got. I, you know, I've, I've never, it's, you know, food poisoning is quite an experience in a foreign country like that when you're on a, sitting on a squat toilet on the ground and it's coming out of every orifice at the same time. It's, it's a wonderful experience. That's why I go. No. You do it because you know that's what God wants you to do. And I'm speaking at a conference in Alexandria, Egypt, and they serve me this bowl of gruel, and the flies are so thick that I have to go like this with one hand to keep the flies off while I try to put food in my mouth with the other. You know how it says uh, Moses drove the flies away? Not true. <laughs> if he did, they all came back and reproduced. I mean, I've never seen such, a, such an, so many flies in my life. I'm sure I ate many. But there's a simple focus of saying, God, I just want to be where you want me to be. That secondly, he says, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules or he's Russian. It's... <laughs> Some of these athletes, I mean, what are they going to do? The only place they can go after taking all those dopes is the baseball. I mean, that's all that's left. <laughs> But there's, there's, this, there's this discipline he's speaking of here. There is a, a decision to be disciplined because the word disciple literally means to be discipled or disciplined in the ways of your master. When somebody says, well, I'm a, a, a devotee or a dis disciple of so-and-so, what that means is you look at their pattern and you seek to imitate it. So that if I am called to be a follower of Jesus, it means I'm seeking to discipline my life in his ways. That's why it becomes, you know, just second nature to say, well, yeah, I read the scriptures because why? How can I understand his ways if I don't read his word? But thirdly, 
He says, the hardworking farmer. And that word hardworking literally means to toil to exhaustion. Should be the first to share, receive a share of the crops. I think about Paul later on saying in, in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Literally the word ergates there means a, a toiler, someone who toils. And the idea is that if I'm going to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, it involves hard work. And again, we are in an era of such high-level convenience that the only thing that people anymore work hard at oftentimes is their play. They work very hard at their play, at their hobby, at the whatever thing they do, but everything else is just kind of circumstantial. One, one employer was just sharing the other day, he says, a lot of my employees, what they want, they want to work 30 hours a week. They want to get paid $28 a day to work 30 hours a week, and they don't want to work anymore because they're making enough money so they can go and play. They want to just have fun to go out and play. Well, you know, I mean, in terms of your career goals or whatever you're doing, that's fine with me. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, we tend to approach ministry not as something I'm committed to, but as a service orientation organization that services me. So that I'm going to shop at one place or another based upon where I can get the best deal at the least cost to myself. How can I get more for less? And that begins to enter into our thinking about even serving God. How can I get the greatest benefit of following Jesus without really having to give up much of myself? And all I can say to you is, if you think marriage is part of the answer to that, there's nothing that's going to demand more of you than being married. Because the relationship rests upon your relationship with Jesus. But fourthly, he says that that man has to be somebody who is biblically sound. And Paul emphasized this maybe more than anything else he talks about in this letter. In verse 13, we saw last week in verse chapter 1, he says, what you have heard from me keep as a pattern of sound teaching. He says this has to be an individual who teaches sound things. He isn't altering the pattern. It's like one well-known uh, preacher uh, is, uh, is on, on a tape and it's recorded and so forth and in books and so forth. But he's sitting there saying to his congregation, he says, there aren't three persons of the Holy Spirit. There are, uh, of the Godhead, there are nine. And he goes on to extrapolate on this concept and he says, you didn't come here to hear old truth, did you? You came here to hear new truth. Now, when you use terms like new truth and old truth, that's an oxymoron. Your truth is either truth. It doesn't get old and it doesn't get new. It's either truth or it isn't true. So it's a nonsense statement to begin with. But essentially, he's saying, I'm going to present you things as truth that have never been said before. You know what the term for that is? A lie. <laughs> but why would somebody do that? to get everybody all a Twitter and excited and going, oh, we're going to get new truth. It's like my wife bringing out leftovers and saying, I'm serving you something new. I like leftovers, but in fact, that's how she often describes me. But anyway, <laughs> but that's why in verse 15 he said, do your best. 
Do your best, your very best, not your occasional convenient, but do your very best to present yourself to God as approved, a workman, a toiler who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Because he warns in chapter 4, we'll get to in a couple of weeks, he said, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will gather around themselves teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. He said, you need to understand that you need to be really founded in that truth, solid in that truth, because the time is coming when people are going to begin to blur the lines. And believe me, we are there. We are really there. At the same time, in a, in a, in a more proactive, he says we need to be proactive in the truth, not reactive, which is why he warns in verse 14, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Again, in verse 16, avoid godless or literally empty words, godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. In verse 23, he adds, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Instead, be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, jet." Wow. Gently instruct in the hope of that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. A lot of words. But what Paul is simply saying is he's not condemning casual conversation here as some have interpreted. He, there's nothing wrong with talking about the, the fabulous Seahawk win yesterday you know, or, or, or the Mariners on this winning streak. I mean, these, this is holy conversation right here now. <laughs> Unless you begin to make that the hope and the purpose of your life, as I find sometimes that my sense of well-being goes up and down by the win-loss record. But nonetheless, that's my sin I'm working through. But the bottom line is, he's not talking about we can't have casual conversation, but he's saying when you begin to have in-depth conversations and even argumentation with people who have no interest in knowing the truth or even ever arriving at the truth. In fact, later on, he's going to talk about these silly women who are ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. I had a friend of mine when he, when he got saved and we were young Christians together being discipled together and he made an interesting comment to me. He says, you know what the hardest thing for me to give up when I came to Christ? And I said, what? He said, the search for the truth. He says, my whole life was defined by searching for the truth. I was a searcher. People come and say, hey, what's your deal? I'm searching for the truth. He says, when I found the truth, then I had to give up my identity. I could no longer say, I'm just searching out there. Searching, searching for my baby. Yes, I am. No, I can't do that anymore. Now I have to say, I found the truth. You know what's wrong with that? The minute you say to somebody, I have found the truth, you're going to get a pilot-like response, what is truth? And you're going to find out whether or not somebody wants to just argue with you or whether they want to hear what you have to say. But he says, you know, it's, Jesus said, dust your shoes off and go on to another place. Don't spend your time endlessly trying to convince somebody who doesn't want to know the truth. In fact, when you come to that kind of person, what do you do? You begin to pray that God would do something in their life. I often try to counsel Christians when you're sharing with friends and family and neighbors and so forth, there needs to be a point where you present the gospel, where you share the reason of the hope that's in you. 
But if you do that every time you get together with them, they are going to get tired of you real fast. When you're talking about a relationship, we call it patient evangelism, you live out what you proclaimed. That's where the power is going to come. State what your faith is and then live it out. Now, if I'm just running into a guy, I'm sitting next to a guy in a plane and we've got an hour flight, I mean, he's going to get the full meal deal. I'm going to give him as much as I can get into him in that period of time. I mean, I'm sorry. And that's why a lot of guys sitting next to me decide to read a newspaper, uh, put their headphone on and watch a movie. They don't want to have that conversation. Okay, that's their deal. I don't rip their headphones off and keep on talking. No, there's, no, there's no gift of being obnoxious, okay? But the whole point is that Paul's saying, don't find yourself being drawn into endless argumentation over things for which there is no solution and there's no resolution. Because here's the issue. God has to grant them repentance so that they can come to their senses and then when they come to the sentences, they can extricate themselves from the trap that the devil has them in and is taking their life captive. See, there has to come a point where a man comes to a sentence because the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes. I'm absolutely convinced people come to the truth because God opens their eyes and they suddenly realize, what am I doing to myself? And at that moment, God says, if you want out, I'll give you the grace to get out. If you want out, I'll give you the grace to be free from this. One of the most heartbreaking things in the world is to see someone who has been rescued over and over and over again from some bondage in their life, and as soon as they recover, they go right back into their sin. And I've seen the sadness because what happens? They come off the addiction, they're clean, they're healthy, everything's functioning, and then they sit and say, you know, I have two options. I can give my life to Jesus or I can go back to drugs, right back to drugs. The average addict does that 12 times before he finally gets tired of it. 12 times. They're captive. They're in bondage. And only God can set them free. Sometimes we can spend hours and hours and hours arguing the point and it goes nowhere. But one thing is critical. Of all the things he said, you have to be someone who is biblically sound. That fifthly, he says you need to be somebody who is morally pure. In verse 22, flee ye the evil desires, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You cannot become impure morally and expect God to ignore it. He will deal with that in your life. And finally, and this may sound strange, but he's repetitive. In verses 7, 8, and 14, Paul says this, reflect on what I am saying. Verse 8, remember. Verse 14, keep reminding them of these things. You know, Moses in his final letter to Israel said some 19 times in the book of Deuteronomy, do not forget, remember. Do not forget, remember. Do not forget, remember. Long ago I came to a realization that I, I rarely have problems with things I don't know. You know, it's almost if I'm truly ignorant about something, God just covers my ignorance 
because he's gracious that way. Where I get in trouble is when God has told me something and I know it's true and I decide that I'm just going to ignore him. You see, a faithful minister of Jesus Christ brings people into remembrance. So if you're here today and and you want to hear some new, fresh version or angle on the Christian faith that will uh, titillate your imagination and senses and so forth, I'm here to to disappoint you. Because the simple truth is, my job is to remind you of what it says. That's my job. That's my, that's my duty. I don't want a new duty. I don't want a dead man duty. I don't need a new duty. This is my responsibility, to tell you what it says, to remind you, because it's not what you don't know that's going to cause problems in your life. It's what you know and you don't do that gets you in trouble. This is the man the kind of people he says. This application isn't just simply saying so you can be a leader in the midst. No, it's, it's so that you can strive to be a spiritual leader in your own life. You see, one of the things that dynamic that I see developing with my generation, it, I'm guilty of this as anybody. After so many years of doing something, you kind of sit back and say, you know, I paid my dues. I've served, I've sacrificed, I've volunteered, I took care of babies, I changed diapers, I served in children's ministry, I did this, I did that. You know, now's my time just to kind of kick back and turn it over to the younger ones. Truth of the matter is, the younger ones desperately need you. You see, the great lie that Satan has perpetrated on his church is that older people are out of date and everything now is hip and now and happening. It's all about the younger people. What I've discovered is younger people desperately need our input in their lives. They desperately need role models. A lot of them desperately need you to take care of their kids on Sunday morning so they can be in here in church. But you see, we get this idea, well, I paid my dues. I've done my season. I've put in my hours, I've made my sacrifice. And without realizing it, you're simply no longer seeing that you have a duty to fulfill within the body of Christ. That God hasn't graduated you to spectator status. But rather, he's called you more now than ever to be engaged in the work of the kingdom. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak these things into our life in a way that they could become powerful. That I know that what I'm going to say right now may not be appreciated by everyone, but the simple truth, God, is I pray that the hound of heaven would haunt everyone here, would just follow and trail us with these kind of things that we would not be able to lightly pass over them but they would become pressing truths in our lives, things that would demand of us a decision, that we would feel the the pressure and the demand of God to respond to your will for our lives, that at a time in our life when many of us who are older are looking for an easier path, a lighter load, this may be, in fact, the best season that you have prepared for us. Help us, God, 
to rise to the occasion, to respond to you, and to allow all that experience and that knowledge, that devotion to Jesus that you have given us to begin to find expression in our daily lives. Guide us, Lord, that we might become engaged, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue in worship, I invite you to partake of the elements of the Lord's table. As I always like to remind us that we do this not as simple ritual, although it is a ritual, but we call it a sacrament, a sacred act, which essentially what makes it sacred is not the bread, is not the wine. What makes it sacred is a heart that is sanctified to the will of God, a heart that takes them and says, God, I recognize that your body was given for me. I give you mine. I recognize that your life was poured out and I drink the the life of the grape as a symbol of my life being poured out for you on the altar of your service. If that's your heart, I encourage you to come and to partake of the elements as a statement to God and no one else, but a statement to God of your commitment to him. If you have issues in your life you'd want us to pray with, I'll be up here. There'll be some other folks on the wings that would be glad just to take time to, to pray with you or to try to answer any questions that you might have as, as long as there, as, as long as a Twitter note. But the bottom line is that uh, we invite you just to respond to what God has spoken into your heart today. What has he said to you? What has he challenged you with? What is he calling you to? Where are those points that you've maybe come to a juncture and you got stuck and you're not moving forward anymore. Today could be the time when you could break free from that and you could begin to really start moving ahead with Jesus in a new and fresh season of your life. I remember at a point in my ministry, not too many years ago, about five years ago, really thinking that, you know, I'm getting to the end of my journey. I probably ought to think about retirement and uh, stepping this off to other guys. And I sat in my living room with a guy and he, he looked at me. I had just met him and he said to me, God told me that your best years are in front of you. And I thought, okay, I, you know, yeah, I know how that works. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and then sometime later, I was talking with another gentleman, younger man. He looked at me and he said, God told me to tell you that your best years are in front of you. And I said, hmm, interesting. Do you know this other guy? <laughs> And then it happened a third time, and I thought, you know, God, okay, I believe that. I give up my retirement home on the beach. Your will be done. <laughs> and you just realize that God calls you to stuff. But you see, when God takes you through a season where he's just breaking you down, and he's breaking you down, and he's breaking you down, it's easy to say, well, everything is just coming apart, and it's so difficult. This must mean that this is the end and the irony is that God comes to us and says, that's the end of that stuff? I got a whole new deal now that I'm doing. Now you're free of that garbage, I got a whole new deal. And some of you need to understand that. God is wanting to do a whole new deal. There's a whole new season that he wants to bring into your life. And you just need to be willing to step back and say, God, I, I won't fight you anymore. Your will be done.